Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. Welcome back to the Godestine's Crowd. This is Jason Broughton. We have back with us today, Dave Peterson. Welcome back, Dave. Thank you. We are looking at the gospel reading for the 10th Sunday after Trinity. It comes from Luke chapter 19, verses 41 to 48. I will read that in the ESV. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. All right, so what's the immediate context here? And does it at all help to uh, solidify what Jesus is weeping over and why, and then um, what he teaches after it? Uh, yeah, I think so. This is this is Palm Sunday, and this is immediately after the Pharisees were complaining about the uh, children crying out, Hosanna, mm-hmm. and he says, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Mm-hmm. So it's it's in that you know ex- explicit context as he's riding into the city that he looks and he sees it mm-hmm. and weeps. And, and then, of course, right, so on Sunday, Palm Sunday, he then goes from there, cleanses the temple, and then he's going to start teaching in the temple. So there is this idea that he's cleansing the temple for himself okay, so that he can preach there. Yeah. And, and then his preaching is also in the temple. I mean, it's hard to know when Monday or Tuesday is, but Luke 20 and 21 are either Monday or Tuesday or both. And 21 is almost entirely eschatological, which ties in with this. So 16 to 19 is the prediction there'll be wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, 20, 20 to 24 is explicitly, again, about the destruction of Jerusalem. So that's repeated. And then signs in sun and moon and stars. Then the parable of the fig tree that you should be able to see this coming, even though, of course, they don't. And then you could pray to escape this. Uh, so all of that eschatological stuff. And then Luke 22, he stops talking. That's Wednesday. There's the plot to kill him and Judas's plan or cooperation and betrayal with mm-hmm. them. So so there is definitely textual connections there and context here. Yeah. Is there any connection? The yeah, sorry. Is there any connection to the parable of the ten minas where the basic the king goes to receive the kingdom and then says, destroy everyone who does not want me to reign over them. So you've got the that parable of a, a king or a nobleman uh, yeah, and then the triumphal entry, which is King Jesus coming to his own, 
right and not being received right. and then the coming destruction upon those who did not know what made for peace yeah well you and you have him telling also before the chapter 21 eschatological stuff the the vineyard owner and the uh the vine dressers that treat the sun that this way right mm-hmm. and kill him yeah so well and that's that I mean, and and that is a distinction between the, the king reference is a distinction between Luke's triumphal entry and the others. Because mm. he says in verse 38, citing from Psalm 118, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Not just oh, the blessed is he. Blessed is he. Yeah. Oh. So he. Do, what's it say in the actual psalm? Does it say he or does it say king? Does Luke, does Luke is he. insert that? Yeah, so, Luke, so Luke, Luke inserts that. Luke uh, interprets it by using the word king. I didn't mm-hmm. know that. That's interesting. I never, I've never known that. I, you know, I don't think because, of course, we always handle the triumphal entry from Matthew. Yeah. Oh, I hope there's no three-year guys listening and feeling triumphant. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's true in this instance. That is, if we had the three-year lectionary, we maybe I might, would have maybe noticed that before. But that's a good. That's interesting that he would. Jonathan, I was just at a conference with Jonathan Fisk. He is the weirdest guy in the world. Um, <laughs> you remember we are recording now. <laughs> I, I think that's a safe. I think that's an objective fact. Okay. I, can, I can defend that. He's my he's my parents' <laughs> pastor, so he's great. I love, love him. him. I've they told him, him he's weird to his face. I'm okay. not. I'm not a shit. He is weird. I how could he? I can't. I can't imagine him denying that. Okay, be like, what? I'm not weird. <laughs> Anyway, he was, he's on this. I don't, I, I, he, there is a generational thing between him and I, he and I. So he is, he's, I like him. I like stuff he says, but he is like hard for me to comprehend. Uh-huh. Anyway, he said a lot of great stuff, a lot of very interesting things, provocatively as always and insightful. Um, but he's on this thing, apparently, maybe everybody knows this about, about the Proverbs and the Psalter which is funny because I wrote a D-min thesis on the Psalter. And I also just taught a Bible study like two years ago on Proverbs, a lot of correspondence. And anyway, but he is, uh, he is like inserting the name Jesus Christ anywhere when he cites or quotes Proverbs or the Psalter. For, I think it's for the word Yahweh, but maybe it's for other words for God mm-hmm. too. And um, he just does it without apology. He doesn't even explain what he's doing. He just, he just says, Jesus Christ. Mm. Which is kind of, I, I think uh, it's obviously a polemical kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's completely appropriate, obviously. It's biblical, I mean, in a way. But it is, it was funny how kind of jarring it was in a way. Mm-hmm. Even even to, you know, us who, or to me, who absolutely believes that Jesus is Yahweh. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I thought that was kind of funny. And I thought, I wonder, you know, I... I don't know. I didn't talk to him about it. He just did it repeatedly. So it was very noticeable. And I mean, a couple of times, like he would cite this and I'd, I'd be like, think, you know, he'd be using the name Jesus Christ. I'd be like, where's that in the Bible? Wait, that's a Psalm, yeah. you know? And, uh, but so it, it kind of worked, I think, in terms of, you know, drawing attention to it. Yeah. So, so maybe that's, so maybe he got the idea from Luke. He probably you know, Luke did. and Jonathan Fisk, they're in the same mm-hmm. category. Yeah. Um, anyway, I, I, so then you've got the king actually pronouncing in our verses and then cleansing the temple. Um, so that, 
so that what Jesus says then in my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made a den of robbers, he's doing exactly what he did just before the Babylonian captivity in Jeremiah and Isaiah. Yeah, yeah. Well, and of course, Jeremiah is going to come into play here mm-hmm. also with the, with the uh, den of thieves bit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that king thing's interesting. Yeah, because it seems like this is more the work of the high priest cleansing the temple. Hmm. I suppose the king bit, you know, does go along with the destruction of the city, maybe. You know, they're refusing to receive the king. I mean, I know these offices are very intertwined, and there's overlap between king and priest, high priest and king, and their duties and their oversight of worship. But cleansing the temple seems more of a priestly act than a kingly act. Unless it's been taken over by enemies. Yeah, right, right, right. That's then the king the has to come in and and do the job. Right, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you have that, I mean, even the domestic overlap, right? I mean, jail might have to come in and do something. I mean, there's there are these these extreme times, especially when the those who are exercising authority are failing to carry out their duties. Mm-hmm. You, I mean, the Psalm 118 well, begins with the whole priesthood stuff, though, right? Yeah. Let the house of Israel now say. Well, what if what if this is a demonstration? Aaron, I mean, a demonstration of all of those all offices. offices, because yeah. you get. Um, when he drew near and he says, would that you, even you had known on this day, the things that make for peace. Right. Well, this is, uh, you know, that they would have known from the prophets. And he's foretelling the future too. Yes. Um, so you have king, prophet, priest, and king all within yeah. these few verses. Well, there you go. It'll fit with your Sunday school lesson. <sighs> I- no, it's true though. But but uh, I mean, that is this is like always the difficulty in these messianic. Well, almost anything theologically, it's the mostly we're talking about distinctions of nuance, mm-hmm. not of reality, right? I mean, mm. uh, that is to say that when we're talking about the difference between the prophet and or the just as we just were between priest and king, I mean, it's in reality there's one there's one messianic office, one person mm-hmm. of Jesus Christ, and when we when we're making these distinctions, they're they're intellectual or analytical, theoretical in a sense. That's not real. Yeah. In the sense that now I'm the priest, now I'm the king. He just is. And sure. So, well, I mean, so, I yeah, think too that there are overlapping duties even among these yeah. three. Like you know, it was the duty of the king to ensure that proper preaching was happening. It was yeah, the duty absolutely. of the king. So to to watch over the prophets. It was the duty of the king to ensure that the priestly services were happening in accordance with the law of God. So it wouldn't have been, even though it was not primarily primarily his duty, it was still within his realm of responsibility to ensure that these things were happening. And this is the point almost throughout all of Kings and Chronicles, right? They did not tear down the high places. They did not do what was right in the Lord's eyes. That's not just like having justice, but in the worship of God. Yes. So here you have false gods or idols being erected within at least the hearts of the people because of what was happening in the actual temple. And the king has to deal with that. It's his responsibility. Right. 
And you probably actually do have literal idols because you probably have engravings of Caesar on these coins. Mm. Because that's what they're changing, right? They're changing the Roman money over to Jewish money. Mm -hmm. And so you have actually a graven image right there in the temple. Yeah, that says, you know, Caesar the son of God on it or something. Right. So (laughs) this is is more um, distasteful. Right, yeah. more of an affront than it than it maybe first appears. They they are providing in some sense a necessary service, mm-hmm. but but there's all sorts of right, and that of course that's always the way it is. It's always it's always more complicated, and there's a, there's always a way to make an excuse for what they're doing, even though it's wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's get into the text. Yeah. Um, let's see. Oh yeah, this is a great text. So it's really loaded with vocabulary. Uh, that's, you know, um, obviously it's loaded with vocabulary. That's an idiotic thing to say. It's loaded with particular vocabulary that is loaded terminology, right? Mm. So starting right off with this, right, that, you know, now, so there's that immediacy. And then as he drew near, right? So he's drawing near again to these, to us, to the world, and then sees the city, weeps over it, um, and then mm-hmm. says, right? So he draws near, sees, weeps, and prophesies. And we touched on that a little bit. And then, of course, he starts right out. And there's a little bit, there's only one translation, or there's one textual difference. I actually, I think I like the ESV on this better than the New King James. But uh, in the first verse there, in verse 42, if you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. So they dropped that um Possessive pronoun before day. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I noticed that in added. the Byzantine text. Yeah, whatever. I don't know. I don't know how to evaluate that textual stuff. But but anyway, the the point with the your day, I think, is is a, a matter of emphasis, right? You already had if you had known, even you. But this this is really the the messianic day is the day of the Jews. Mm-hmm. This is their great. This is their purpose. To, yeah. And this is the culmination of history, and this is their glory, right? So it, it's really kind of this sad irony that that they refuse it, and this this should be the day. You know, this is all the stuff, the culmination. So so there's that that kind of nice thing, the drawing near, and then of course knowing and seeing both of these things refer to faith, right? That that they're they're not able to see it; it's hidden from their eyes. Um, you know, it's covered. And of course, there's go- it's going to be uncovered, but when it's uncovered, finally for them, when it's uncovered for, for everyone, when every knee bows and tongue confesses, they're going to be sent off to the place that was prepared for the devil and his angels. So that's kind of horrific, but mm-hmm. that's how it goes. There's also this great thing, of course, the word peace, uh, which, you know, he's the prince of peace and we have all that stuff in the Bible. But also, I think sometimes we don't talk, we don't we sometimes forget that this is the normal greeting. Mm. And it, I think there's a way, here's a kind of preaching connection you could make if you wanted, that we do the same thing with the word goodbye. So goodbye means God be with you, which is a mm. blessing and a prayer. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we, use, we just shorten it to bye, get rid of God. And also mm. we just kind of say it as a meaningless, polite thing. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's polite, that's good, but it doesn't have any meaning, just goodbye. And they're, they're using this word that is a messianic word, it's a theological word. Of course, the name God, God be with you, should be also. But 
you know, they're doing it in a way without any consideration of what they really are saying. And it's supposed to be that every time you run into somebody, you're supposed to be peace, right? This is what we're living in peace because of the Messiah. We expect peace because of the Messiah. We're waiting for the time when, when when finally the lion lies down with the lamb and all that. And, Mm -hmm. and they have just, this has been denigrated to be a meaningless word. Yeah. Uh, they, they say it all the time, but they don't know what it means. They don't care what it means. They don't know what actually peace is and what mm-hmm. Jesus brings. So it's so, like when we sit down for a meal and ask God to bless our bodies as we like <laughs> shovel in really right. bad stuff for us. <laughs> or don't even, I mean, you know, I, I can't. So we have a, we have a ritualized prayer, prayers before and after meals. Yeah. And, um, I can't tell you to my shame how many times, and and oh, and also to the great embarrassment of the Godestine editors, our beginning prayer is just "Come, Lord Jesus, be our guest." Mm-hmm. That's what we grew up with, and it's just too late. So anyway, so but at the end, then we have another. You know, we have prayers at the end, and I can't tell you how many times that the, the meal ends and it's time to pray, and I'll say, "Come, Lord Jesus, be." I'll say the beginning one, and I don't <laughs> even know it. And then I and then I like look up, and Jackie's looking at me like I'm an idiot. And then I have to, and that takes a beat, and I'm like, "Oh, I just said, come, Lord Jesus, didn't I?" Get right. So, I mean, that's the kind of ultimate. Uh, th- this is what the this is what the uh, evangelicals complain about our our rote prayers, and sometimes mm-hmm. it's true. So, I'm just blithering out prayers without thinking about them at all, just saying the words. So, not just not just the way I'm behaving during the meal, but yeah. the fact that I'm just I don't even when I say bless this food or whatever, I don't even mean it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that there's a lot. Yeah. There's a lot of preaching opportunities there. Mm-hmm. I, obviously, we have to have the caveat. This you know, this isn't fixed by turning inwardly as possible and making prayer simply an emotive experience or an existential crisis or mm-hmm. an opportunity to show off our eloquence. Yeah, uh, rote, rote prayers are very valuable, but they do have this danger of being only rote. Sure. I mean, but you have, you know, the pat phrases that come up in the evangelical service. Lord, oh, we just want to, yeah. you know, we just want to glorify your name and all that I mean, stuff. That's all so. we want. Just that. We, that we just want. <laughs> I'm always like, I, you know, I was, I was like, I want to raise my hand. I want a little more. I don't want you. <laughs> anyway. Uh, well, I mean, the context in which he says that is when he gives the Lord's prayer. Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, yeah. don't. Don't heap up phrases, empty phrases. Don't don't have this. And then he says, "But when you pray, say." <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. Well, one of the gospels he says, "When you say, say this," and the other one he says, "When you pray, pray like this." Mm. So it's explicit. What? And I don't remember which is which, but one of them he says, "Say this. Say these words." Yeah, that's. And in then another place he does ex- he does say, "This is an example of how to pray." Mm-hmm. So it should be both, right? It's not yeah. as though I pray the Lord's prayer. That's all I pray. It should mm-hmm. also be an example that, that guides prayer. But, but yeah. it should be a prayer that is actually prayed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't think that's a big debate amongst us, but it's worth pointing out. That would be something. How bad is the Missouri Synod if, could you find, I mean, maybe, it, I, I, think, I think maybe it's not that. It's in this instance, I bet there isn't a single Missouri Synod service on Sunday morning or a, a worship service of any sort, any day of the week that doesn't include the Lord's Prayer. 
Oh, yeah. There's worship services in the Missouri Synod that don't include the creeds, mm -hmm. but I, I bet there aren't any that don't include the Lord's Prayer. Yeah. I don't. So I, I would be bet that, that there's not a meeting that happens we, that doesn't end oh, with the Lord's Prayer. We, we end all our meetings here at the Lord's Prayer, and we did it at my form, the, the church, first church I served as well. Mm -hmm. But I bet there are some places that don't do that. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, there you go. We've got that. We got the Lord's Prayer. Okay. All right. So um, <laughs> let's add the creeds. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So uh, peace as a, a vacuous term that is just a greeting or a yeah. goodbye. Um, that no longer has the same meaning. And that's going to relate later to the lowering the place of the temple. Is that yeah. what you, Yeah, okay. Peace is pronounced there at the temple. The, You know, I think also, so this is obviously a rebuke, mm -hmm. right? This is a law statement. Um, however, as is typical, we, we, we see in this also a revealing of God's will that his desire and his purpose is to make for peace, mm -hmm. even though this is a rebuke. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a we, lament. Yeah. He's lamenting and weeping that though they should have known, they don't know. They didn't right. know, they didn't hear it from the prophets and they haven't heard it in his own preaching. And because right. of that, if you're not going to have the Lord as your peaceful king, you are going to have him as king, but in the other direction. Right. Yes. I, and I'm just simply saying that we can also recognize in this an actual description of who he is and what he's doing mm -hmm. and how it is that we love him. Yeah. This is his compassion right. being shown. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And his the fact that he, this is a legit promise. He is making for peace. Yeah. Okay. So, but now they're hidden from your eyes. But now they're hidden, right? They're, well, because the patience of the Lord does not endure forever, though his mercy does. Yeah. And his patience should not be mistaken for weakness or mm. for complacency, because uh, then you get the threat, and the days are going to come upon you. So I, so I really don't like the King James. I know this is really petty, but you know me, I'm, I am petty. So I don't like this translation. The New King James says, your enemies will build an embankment around you. And I think the ESV, I think you said set up. Is that what it says? Set up a barricade. Up a, yeah, that's good. Set up a, a barricade's kind of weird, but yeah. But set up a barricade. That just reminds me of Les Mis, you know, that song. But mm. the uh but the setup is much better because the word is like is literally throw up. And so setup's good. I don't I don't want to these guys are not builders, they're destroyers. Ah, gotcha. And I know that I, I know that's subtle, but they're not the king, coming to build anything. The King James says that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee. Ooh, good. I love it. That's beautiful. See, the King James is so good. That's great. Yeah, cast, because the word throw is, is yeah, in there. Ekbal, it's peribalo, isn't it? Peribalo, right. So I to mean, cast, cast around. Yep. That's mm -hmm. great. That's a great translation. I mean, the point is they're not, they're not, I just. They're not building something. It's not structurally, it doesn't have structural integrity. It's not a Well, there's no kind of good, yeah, and no kind of goodness. Yeah. Right. They're, they're there to destroy, not to build, right? Mm -hmm. And so anyway, I know that's pretty subtle, but you know, it's in there and it's, it's worth thinking about. He's, yeah. the building's over. He's not building anymore. He's tearing them down. Even the children, which is the ultimate statement of lack of mercy. Right when 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 mercy has ended, when the law has its way, no one is innocent. 
no one is spared, mm-hmm. uh, which is the ultimate in in the Bible, the idea of the ultimate cruelty. I mean, this mm-hmm. is like even the pagans would know enough to not murder children. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, sometimes the pagans do, but the pagans also lament this. And But there comes a time when the law is is going to be fulfilled in this way, and no one gets into heaven apart from faith, and no one comes to faith by his own innocency or by his own reason or will. And you're not only doing this to yourself, you're doing this to your children. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, it's your fault, but it's also this, this real preaching of the law. And, you know, again, this is a sort of opposite statement, kind of like we see in the, you know, this promise that he does come to make for peace. Mm-hmm. I think there's also this kind of elevation and back in a backwards way of children mm-hmm. that to be cruel to children is the most unimaginable thing. Yeah. So I, I can see a kind of anti-abortion statement in this as the point again, you know, because children are being held up as that which actually are the, the, the most essential thing to protect and to honor in a society and to recognize because, because again, God is the God of life and he's the living God and he loves life and he creates life. And therefore children are to, to have a child is like the most godlike thing mm-hmm. um, to be involved in life. And that's why women in particular have this honor and this glory of being more essential uh, to the to the procreation of life than men. Is there so, a, an appeal here from our Lord to the angels of their better nature, so to speak, by bringing in the children to say, to say do you know that this is not just going to be against you? but even your children, like to wake them up? Is this a, a jarring yeah. statement to them? Yeah, I think I think both. I think also the thing about all of it is, I mean, he's not just, this isn't just a prophecy of what will happen. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. it's not coldly done. He, he's weeping. And he's even in this, you know, there is this proclamation that's meant to be a warning that this can be avoided, that this is unnecessary. I mean, it's going to happen, but you don't have to suffer it in this way. You can find peace. Your children can be saved. You know, I'm coming in compassion as the willing victim for the sake of peace. I am the peace offering, and I'm here to make for your peace and for your children. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, sure, th- there is absolutely a gospel reading of this, and it is meant that way, yeah. even though it's a law statement yeah, or it's a lament, right? I mean, you see the Lord's compassion. This is... Yes. It's a rhetorical device. Mm-hmm. Um, not that it's not true, but it's it's meant... Yes, he absolutely is saying this, that they would wake up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're, it's not recorded that any of them do, but I I expect some of them do. At least the apostles have this, have this example. Mm-hmm. Well, then you get this last, it seems like a technical term or a, a vocabulary yeah. word that we need to, to look into, visitation and the time of your visitation. Right. What's so? Can we un- unpack that? Well, uh, yes. Right. So we have this. This word. This is the word episcopus, which is mm-hmm. our word for bishop. Right. Bishops are supposed to be those who who visit mm-hmm. and who have oversight. Right. They're visiting for a purpose. Yeah. <laughs> They're visiting not only to bring aid and help which they are doing that, but they're also visiting to to make sure things are in order. And, you know, that's what, what Jesus is coming. He's the bishop of our souls, and mm-hmm. he, comes, he comes in this way. And I think we should see in this a coloring of the apostolic office that 
that will proceed from Jesus to the apostles to us and to recognize that visitation in the fullest sense of the term is still a necessary work of the office of the ministry. Um, now, we usually kind of reduce visitation a little bit to just, you know, getting to know people. But ideally, you know, it'd be, it'd be a more serious, formal kind of event. Not that mm-hmm. the whole thing has to be formal, but, but I think there ought to be this recognition. I mean, I'm just even talking about the pastor going to the people's homes or visiting them wherever he visits them. And, you know, this kind of sense of recognizing that they're receiving somebody significant. And again, I, I know, I, right, we're so terrified that people are going to think that we're proud and think more of ourselves than we should, which I'm sure we do. At the same time, there's a real office of the ministry that Christ has instituted that we should take with absolute seriousness, mm-hmm. right? When you go see your father confessor, I mean, there's a little bit of trembling and fear there, Yeah. right? Not terror, but there's a recognition that this is a serious event and that God is present and that I need to act appropriately. Mm-hmm. That's, again, I think one of the real benefits that we don't talk about much with private confession and absolution. It just, for me at least, it just like makes the thing real. Um, yeah. It moves me out of that kind of professional mode and just thinking about theology as a beautiful system. So, you know, the, the if the pastor goes to the people, say, hey, well, I mean, I'm, I'm just going to say what I do. I'm, maybe there's, I'm sure there's other ways to do it and perhaps there's better ways to do it. And I'm, I'm open to suggestions. But what I like to do when I go visit people's homes, you know, whether they're visitors or whatever, whatever reason I'm visiting, uh, I like to go and do family devotions with them. So what I do is I go and, uh, and I show them, I teach them how to do devotions by leading devotions. And mm-hmm. I say, you know, this is what you do. And we produce one of these, we stole this idea from Peter Bender, even the vocabulary of congregation at prayer, mm-hmm. though ours is just slightly different than his, but right where it's, it's a guide for family devotions. It has the memory work for the week. It has the prayer list, you know, all the shut-ins and so forth. And, and then it has a, a you know, Bible readings. And so I'm like, here's how you use this for your family devotions. You know, you're free, you can do what you want, but you need to do this. You need to read the Bible together. You need to pray together. The, you know, the head of the house should lead this if possible. Yeah. So, but you know, part of that in that is before I start, I ask them, do you have family devotions? And if, you know, that's, it's, it's part of this kind of making sure things are in order and reminding Mm -hmm. them of what their duties are. So, you know, so asking some of those questions is part of this supervision and oversight. It's it's encouragement, but there is a kind of law preaching in it, right? Yeah. Well, it seems like we've talked about this elsewhere, that it takes seriously the need for maintenance versus new building. And mm. it takes seriously the fact that entropy is real. Right. And I want them to do their duty. I want them. Yeah. You know, I, these all of these these three things are very important to me, and I, they should be important to them. And I, I think they they are. But you know, they, we're all weak on this. I mean, I'm am I I don't have perfect uh, record with family devotions at all. But but these three things that there should be daily Bible reading, that there should be daily prayer, which should include intercessory prayers, mm-hmm. and that there should be memory 
work going on. Um, so, you know, those are the things that I, I really want in their devotions. And, you know, I, I mean, you know, I take what I can get and I'm not kicking, people aren't kicked out of our, we're not keeping track. I don't, you know, I don't come back to the church and enter the book. Well, the Smiths told me they don't do the memory work. Um, <laughs> you know, but, but these are, this is what we need to be kind of upholding and encouraging mm-hmm. and recognizing that this is what we're called to, just like we, just like we encourage them to come to church every week and receive the sacrament, you know, to listen closely to the sermons, to tithe, you know, to learn the table of duties. I mean, on and on, right? This is just part of being a Christian. It's not a standard that we're using to judge people or to keep people out of heaven or to, you know, to be a voter or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but, but it's part of this. And, you know, in an ideal world, our district presidents would also show up and, do a similar thing, though I would hope more a little bit more rigorously with the pastors, right? And yeah. you know, part of that visitation would probably be some questions uh, for the pastor about his about his marriage, about his children, about his own family life. Is the pastor doing family devotions? Is he leading by example? Does he is he in the midst of a spiritual crisis? You know, just those sorts of things. Um, to you know give a a little bit of a rebuke where it's needed, but also an encouragement and set an example. And then of course, moving on from the family and the pastor's personal life to the actual conduct of the ministry in the service. Is he actually writing sermons that have actually been prepared? I mean, he's, he's done the work. Is he, you know, just all the stuff he's supposed to be doing. Is he doing visitations? Is Mm -hmm. he blah, blah, blah. And is he doing it you know, even if he is doing it, you know, is there a little bit of advice that the bishop, the district president might be able to give him? Oh, you're doing this. Well, good. You know, you could all, maybe, you know, when you go to visit them, you should also read the Bible to them, uh, you know, whatever. Right. So anyway, I, yes, that so, was a long speech, but Episcopus, this idea of visitation isn't just about becoming better friends with the people. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, so by this, being included here in what Jesus does by his incarnation, his ministry, preaching, all that. This is his visitation. Yeah. So visitation, well, so visitation is a foregone conclusion for the office of the ministry. Yes, and it's still and visitation is also part of the ministry of the word. It's mm-hmm. a time to teach. Yeah. Okay. Right. Uh, so you've it's also assumed, got... I don't want to say assumed, but it's, it's even though it might not be explicitly stated, do this, it is part and parcel of what is supposed to happen. Yes. It's embodied in the office itself. Yeah. It's the okay. character of the office. It's the character of the and, office. That's what I was trying to get at. And you've got this word Kairos too for time, which you hinted at, right? Well, that I guess is, that there is that. Yeah. The, the questions that is raised for me is, um, you can only know the time of your visitation if the visitation is happening. So, <laughs> yes. right, right. So, so there is um, there is a responsibility, a double responsibility placed on the office of the ministry. Then, hmm. that if you're not doing the work of visitation, yeah, the 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 full um, preaching of the word or the 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 administration of the word. How is it even possible for the people to know that they are being visited? Yeah, how is it even so? And and obviously, visitation is not simply going to their homes. That happens also in the divine service. So it's not it's not all or nothing in that respect. But 
you know, so we, we, we have a double, a double duty here. Well, I think it also happens. Yeah. I, I, you you need to be in the people's homes some as you can be. And, you know, and some people don't want you in their homes and you have to respect that as well. But I think, so visitation also takes place around the divine service or at other events. Mm. I mean, I think, you know, we ought to be, we ought to recognize, you know, that before Bible class starts, you know, you're kind of looking around, the pastor Mm -hmm. ought to be looking around the room and seeing who he needs to talk to. Mm-hmm. You know, at the potluck, he ought to move around the room and talk to people. I yeah. mean, we're we're working; these are working events for us. Yeah, and you know, so I mean, I I'm not in every person's home, even every. I mean, it depends, and, and there's different things and circumstances, and life has a way of kind of getting in into people's homes. But I mostly just kind of see the people. I usually go visit them in their homes when they first come. And then I may not be in their homes again, but I'll see them in the hospital or I'm seeing them at their homes in different points. You know, I'm over for a birthday party or a confirmation or whatever. So there's kind of, you know, just takes care of itself. Mm-hmm. But I do think we have to be very kind of deliberate in recognizing that we're just actually visiting with people. And, you know, a lot of it is small talk and, and, and the like, but there is a kind of I'm here, I'm available, I'm listening, and I'm, I'm instructing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Okay. Or, and I think even in some ways I would count when they come to see you as visitation, Mm -hmm. right? When they come to see you because they have some kind of spiritual problem or they're looking for some sort of advice, you know, kind of, you know, pastoral care kind of stuff. Right. I I mean, I really, I ask so many times, I ask people in, in private confession and in pastoral care, when they come in to visit me, I ask them almost every time. If a couple comes in, you know, and they're 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 having some marital issues or whatever, God be praised that they that they recognize it and they want to work on it because that's the right thing. But I always ask him, "How's your family devotions?" And you know, every crisis to me, it's not not that that's a solution and an answer to every crisis, but it's always part of it. Yeah. What are you doing day to day? You know, I know you're in church on Sundays. That's great, and I'm not dismissing that as essential. But you know, the, the next thing is, what are you doing? How are your family devotions? And mm-hmm. what are you doing for them? And how are you doing them? So, And so that visitation is meant to put back into order what that which has gone out of whack. Right. Yeah. How are you going to fix your marriage if you're not reading the Bible yeah. and praying? Mm-hmm. And how are you going to create this bond? I mean, how are you going to not create it, but strengthen and keep this bond, maintain this bond that God has given you? apart from worshiping together. And that's mm-hmm. not just on Sunday morning. Yeah. You know, it's also family. The marriage, the marriage yeah. bed is dysfunctional. Well, you know, this is, this is a theological problem and there might, you might need more help than just, you know, a theological straightening out, but that's the place you got to start. If you don't even know what a man or a woman is, or you don't know what the purpose of the marriage bed is. Well, of course it's, you know, yeah. Let's get that straight, at least at an intellectual, academic, idealized way. And then, you know, at least we know what we're trying for. And then mm-hmm. we can see where it's broken and how we're using one another instead of actually living in this mm-hmm. joy and intimacy or yeah. on and on. All right. So instead of knowing the time of their visitation, they're now tr- they're treating the temple as though it were a safe house, a den of robbers. Yeah, and it's total antinomianism. Yeah, uh, we skipped the stone thing, though. I did. I mean, there are there's definitely some stone stuff going on, um, mm-hmm. because right, because the stones would cry out, 
They're not going to leave one stone upon another. And then in, in the next chapter, the stone which the builders rejected back to Psalm 118. So, okay, you could do a whole Carl Fabrizius thing with stones. Yeah. Have a pretty good Look time. at all these stones, how beautiful they are. Yeah, the temple's made of stones, mm-hmm. you know, so you've got that. Anyway, yeah, the this Jeremiah. We are living stones. Seven, right, First okay. Peter. Um, so the antinomianism is really interesting because that, that's the whole thing in Jeremiah. They, they, they're just crying out, right, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Mm-hmm. And here he says, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. We go steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I have seen it, says the Lord, right? So Jesus draws near, he sees the city, he sees the temple, he sees what's going on, right? This isn't being done, God knows, um, and, uh, and you're judged for it. I, so the, the ACELC, it's hard to get those initials. That's this organization that in my mind's kind of run out of Kansas and Nebraska. Mm-hmm. They've identified 10 doctrinal issues in the Missouri Synod. And, um, so here they are, here's the 10 doctrinal issues. They say, this is what the, where the Missouri Synod needs work. And I, I don't mm-hmm. think anybody could disagree with them really. Uh, um, we, we need to have pure doctrine we need to have holy communion rightly practiced, right, with bread and wine and closed communion. We need to we need to use the divine service and the offices from the hymnal. Basically, we shouldn't be engaged in unionism and syncretism. We need to recognize the difference between men and women, what the appropriate service of women is in the church, and mm-hmm. where there are limits. Obviously, the office of the ministry, but but how that works itself out in other realms as well. Yeah, uh, we need to deal with the office of the ministry. Period. Uh, the unbiblical removal of pastors. We need to have actual ecclesiastical supervision and visitation, and we need to deal with this disaster of dispute resolution. I think that's a great list, and I think it's pretty comprehensive. Mm -hmm. Uh, I noticed just recently that every one of those is an antinomian problem. Uh, so, which I know this is like my hobby horse. So I'm, but, but think about this, right? Nobody has. So, cause about, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, I was told by the Missouri Senate. I brought this anti. What I th- I think antinomianism's problem in the Missouri Senate, and that some of the LCMS administration said, well, technically it's a problem, but it's the right sort of problem because a worse problem is legalism. You can fall off the ditch either way, but it's better to err on the side of the gospel. That's a more Christian thing to do. <sighs> Which is okay. First of all, that's a bad argument and wrong. But also, I think it's insane to think that the reason we have open communion is because the people practicing open communion are legalists or pietists. Right. The people practicing open communion are doing it because they don't believe the law of holy communion. Mm-hmm. They think the gospel of holy communion overrides it and they're more concerned about the gospel and welcoming people and Jesus, right? Open communion is practiced by people who do not recognize will not recognize the law in 1 Corinthians 11 and elsewhere. And they they would say they're operating according to the gospel, right? You have the same sort Yeah, of, they would say that. I mean, I think on all sides it's antinomian in the sense that people just are afraid of conflict. Yeah. Well, and it's lazy, (laughs) lazy, but it's, but it's like they, they think they're operating, right. They're not legalists. No. And you know, the, the um, unionism and syncretism, right. Why should we go to Yankee stadium and pray with Muslims? That's not because they're legalists. Mm -hmm. 
again, right? They don't believe in, and, and on down the line, all of these problems are, mm-hmm. you know, ecclesiastical supervision, right? We just don't want to deal with it. We don't want to discipline people. We don't want to recognize where they're wrong. We don't want to tell them that mm-hmm. because that would be the law. And we just want everything. So uh, anyway, I just think that's fascinating, horrible in a way. I was asked recently, do I think that antinomianism, we finally defeated antinomianism in the Missouri Synod? I, absolutely not. Yeah. Um, I think in our we've won, sliver, we've won some significant battles, but it's not over. We've raised awareness, yeah, and 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 I think in our particular right in the Godestines crowd, we're God be praised, we're aware of it now, and we recognize it as a problem. But I think again, if you look at like, and I mean, you know, I I just picked the ACELC list because I was recently with them. And I think it's a very nice, thorough list that's more than like 12 years old now. Mm-hmm. Um, and no, no real progress has been made on this list at all. Yeah. Um, it's, we're still in basically the same position with regard to all of these things as we mm-hmm. were. And, um, and then when you start thinking about it, right, what's the, and again, in kind of light of that conversation, um, what's causing all these problems? It's just antinomianism. We're just, you know, we, we just look past sin instead of actually having real repentance and real forgiveness. We just pronounce absolution, which isn't absolution, upon the impenitent mm-hmm. and then pretend like that's fine. That's what Jesus wanted us to do. Right. The church has no authority to forgive the impenitent, right? right. The office of the keys is that special authority which Christ has given to the church on, the, on earth to forgive the sins of repentant sinners. You cannot. You can pretend like you can. You can say the words. Yeah, but that's not real absolution, and you know, there's this sort of like, well, a guy does something horrific, and then he says he's sorry that he, you know, broke the rules, but you know, he did it for love, and then we're like, oh, okay, well, we forgive you. No, look, if he did something that was actually against God's law, that was actually an act of idolatry, mm-hmm. we're, we're kind of allowing excuses. And because we, again, we want to avoid conflict and we want to be nice and we don't want to draw attention to these things. I mean, there's just lots of this kind of stuff going on. Yeah. And well, at the same time, there is no avenue for, to demonstrate fruits of repentance. Right. And that's part of it. Like we, right. we, right. we have kind of bludgeoned the hobby horse of, of, you know, what we perceive Rome to have done during the time of the Reformation, which is require penance. And we've just taken that completely away, even though our confessions don't. Right. Well, we have this idea that the absolution is going to remove all consequences. Right. On earth, right? If you if you forgave me, then you can't remember that it happened. And you can't, you know, and just all sorts of, again, it's an antinomian. It's a shallow view of the gospel that dismisses the law, that actually robs God of his own legal authority and, and kind of takes for ourselves an insistence, which, I mean, this is Jeremiah chapter seven. That's the point, right? Yeah. They've made it a den of robbers in the name of the gospel, yeah. right? In and, the way oh, of the gospel, the perhaps. In the way of the gospel, yeah. <laughs> so there's my mandatory weekly antinomian rant. Good. We need more of these. Um, <laughs> how does how has antinomianism infected the laity of our parishes? without them even knowing it. In other words, how do we address this to the people sitting in our pews so that they recognize that they, they, 
you know, how have they made uh, the gospel and the sacraments a safe house for their sin? Well, first of all, they're afraid to judge one another in any mm-hmm. way. I, I think almost the whole Sermon on the Mount is misunderstood in a mm-hmm. kind of antinomian way, because it isn't read as wisdom literature that's, yeah. that's, that's exposing the beauty of God's law and his goodness through these provocative statements. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, you know, things like judge not are taken just absolutely literally, uh, I mean, in the wrong kind of way of literally, right? As though, mm-hmm. and, and so I think, you know, this, we've been terrified of being Ned Flanders on The Simpsons. Mm. That's like, that's the character that we most want to avoid. It's like calling a boomer a racist. If you call a boomer a racist, that's the worst thing you could call him. He can't, he'll do anything to prove he isn't, which look, nobody, I don't, I mean, is horrible to actually be a racist and I don't want to be accused of being a racist, but we can't be bullied by the threat of just being called a name falsely so that we'll do anything to avoid it. And, And I think there's a kind of similar sort of thing in the church that exists writ large amongst the laity also. And that's to, you know, kind of be Ned Flanders, to look judgmental, mm-hmm. a bigot, uh, you know. And so we're afraid to just call things what they are, particularly, of course, and conveniently when it's in our own families and those that mm-hmm. we love. So, yeah. and we do it again, like it's this, what we're, it's an inordinate love. So, yeah, you know, you love your son and he's doing absolutely wicked things. And you don't want to get into conflict with him because you love him. Well, mm-hmm. look, if you love him more than you love God's law and gospel, more than you love God's word, more than you love God himself, even though love of your son is good, that's an, that's an inordinate love, right? Mm-hmm. It's a disordered love because you're not loving him in the proper order and way, and you've made him and your love for him into an idol. And that mm-hmm. happens very easily and very quickly, and the devil's He's so good at talking us into it and giving us excuses. Yeah. So and that requires visitation. That requires visitation. And that requires <laughs> commitment and mm-hmm. sacrifice, you know, and that we're going to bear a cross. And the cross is, you know what? I'm not going to, you know, this like, okay, I'll, here's, here's a little advice for the lay people. Stop telling me that your unbelieving relatives are going to heaven. Yeah. I, I mean, I hear this from lay people, and I, and I mean, in some ways, I am sympathetic. I mean, I know you're just desperate for that for your loved ones to go to heaven, but don't tell me you're, that unbelievers go to heaven just because they're loved by you. Your love doesn't save people. Yeah. And so, you know, stop telling me this because you know what? Every unbeliever, whether you love that person or not, is going to hell. Mm-hmm. And we've got to be honest about this so that we can actually minister to these people, and we got to be willing. We, we, to bear the cross of not being the ones who decide who go, who's, who goes to heaven, you know, even though we love them and it breaks our hearts. That's, yeah. that's probably it. There you go. That's the, that's the easy, I mean, and again, I, you know, I hope you know, my heart breaks too. And I am sympathetic at the same time, right? Our speech needs to conform to Holy scripture and to the revealed will of God. So here's what you say. Instead of saying, my unbelieving son, I know he's going to heaven. I know he loves Jesus in his heart, even though everything he does denies that, and he's vocally denied it and the like. Instead, just say, I know he was baptized. His soul is in God's hands, and I trust that God will work everything together for good to those who love him, period. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying you have to tell me your son's going to hell, but don't tell me he's going to heaven because you love him. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and does this time of visitation filter down? So in other words, is this a duty given not only to fathers in the pastoral office, but also fathers in the home office? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Even I would say even to employers, right? Anybody that's yeah, exercising authority. And even. Yeah, yeah. Right. That, that, I mean, we're all our brother's keepers and we're all to care about these things. And we always have a duty to our subordinates as mm-hmm. well as, you know, honor and obedience to those who exercise authority over us. So it's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think also the visitation thing, you can go, you can go the other way too. The subordinate can request visitation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if your pastor is not visiting you or you feel like he's not listening to you, you know, you could, why don't you just call him and say, I'd like, I'd like a visit. I can't mm-hmm. imagine the pastor that says no. Yeah. Well, I mean, he could, if you're manipulating him. I mean, if there need to be some boundaries, I mean, if you're doing this every week, you know. Yeah, but yeah, I would sure. Say, but if you called your pastor and he said, look, you haven't been, you haven't really had a meaningful conversation with me for two years. You haven't been to my house in five. Um, you know, there's no crisis, but, you know, I, I want to visit. visit. I, he, I, oh, my goodness. I can't imagine a pastor that would, would not bend over backwards to make that happen. Yeah. Okay, so Den of Robbers treating <laughs> God's word and his gifts as uh, a safe house for your sins. And then it says he was teaching daily in the temple. So what should that look like? I mean, so what is that? What kind of instruction does that give us in the church now? Mm, that's a good question. I mean, I suppose we could apply this to family devotions, Bible reading. Mm-hmm. I mean, it does seem a bit different to me uh, what Jesus is doing in the temple there. But, you know, I, it does have a kind of correspondence to Holy Week, I think, at least in how we observe it, that for us, Holy Week is an intense time of extra services, extra Bible readings, mm-hmm. you know, once a year. Because these aren't family devotions he's holding in the temple. I mean, this is these are services, I think. But, but you could so apply is, it. Is, is this the enacting of the stronger man to the strong man? Well, that's great. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, this this they're seeking to destroy him is a loaded term too, mm-hmm. right? So there is a demonic aspect here, and they don't want him just to be quiet or to go away, and they certainly aren't tolerant of him in any way. They want him destroyed, right? Mm-hmm. Sent to perdition. Um, and th- this, uh, that they were unable to do anything is a miraculous, right? That the, the people are very attentive to hear him is, um, it's, it's prophetic protection, right? The prophet is being protected by the Holy Spirit from the demons and from their agents in these people. And I don't, I do not read in this that they were very attentive to hear him, meaning that they were being converted in great droves. It, it's mm-hmm. rather he's, they, they, they know that something's up, that something's significant, and they, they're unable to respond because they've been interfered. They're right, they're being kept from responding according to malice. Some of them might have converted, and we hope and pray they did. Again, certainly all the instruction that comes here is absolutely essential and beneficial to the apostles and, and to all of us, you know, who received mm-hmm. the apostolic word. But, but this teaching in the temple, right, he's cleansed the temple for the sake of his teaching that he might teach there. And the demons are being held at bay that desire to destroy him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this hearing of him, I mean, it's kind of pro forma, 
it's it's not a faithful hearing on the p- behalf of most of these people, but they they cannot silence him. They are silenced, and then of course you know that's that protection is going to be removed so that he can be sacrificed. But well, I mean, it does say they are hanging on his word. This is the same word used in Galatians three. I know, but and then it's it's actually not on his words, on his being heard, being heard, his hearing, yeah. yeah. I don't, I mean, again, you know, it's, it's probably mixed. There probably are some, but I mean, we know there's not too many of them on Friday that are, I don't think that for the most part, this is really a, and you know, it could be a, it's a setup maybe for Pentecost. So 40 days or 50 days, you know, from this point, maybe this will come back to them and they'll recognize and it'll finally make sense. Um, But in this, this moment, they're not acting in a faithful way for the most part. And, you know, the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people, that would have been apparently like the head lay people of important families. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't say they're listening at all. Oh, there's another, there's another textual well, thing. That's the, big, that's the big distinction here, right? Yeah. So you've got Who's the king coming that? for his visitation. And usually when that happens, all the principal men of the people gather around and give him a tour. Yeah, but that's right. all of the principal men are not there. Right. And it's only children and you know the the others that aren't that are receiving him. Well, that was on Palm Sunday. I I don't know if they're around anymore. They they could be, but again, you know, when he sees the city, you know, he seems like he's condemning. He doesn't just condemn the leaders of the city, right? He's going to level you and your children within you. That's the whole city. Mm-hmm. I mean, a few of them again, few of them, but right? Yeah, I mean, it's the whole city. Yeah. So anyway, it's a, it's a hard it's a hard reading um, mm-hmm. in that it's so, I mean it's 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 how serious this is. Yeah. Now, isn't this the Sunday that you uh, historically would read from Josephus? Oh, is that when this is? Yeah, I I think you're right. I always forget. I've never done that. I was actually, I've read about it. I've never mm-hmm. done it. But I was actually at Tom Olson's church in North Carolina last summer, and he did it. Okay. And I thought it was great. I think it was. I think that's where it was. I was at Tom Olson's. I was at some church where they did this. I know I was mm-hmm. at Tom Olson's church. Have do you do it? Have you ever I done don't, that? I don't. So, I mean, I usually refer to it in the sermon. Yeah, I may have. I don't even know if I've ever done that, but I may have. I mean, I've I've always been kind of aware of it, but I forgot it was this because I was only looking at the gospel for to get ready for this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's Spangenberg the, 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 makes a big deal of, yeah. and he, I mean, he even quotes, and you can find. He quotes Josephus and 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 gives the reference so that you can look it up if you haven't. I'm going to write that down. I'm, I'm but I, I wouldn't even that. know where you would read it. Do you just read it before the sermon? I can't remember where this guy who, where where he did it. Seems I think he did it after. It seems like he did it in connection with the gospel. Okay. Just, I think um, who else talks about this? Maybe it's it's got to be either Peepcorn or Lang. So it's yeah. or maybe maybe Reed. I. Um, I mean, it's one of those, certainly this isn't going to be an LSB no. or at the three-year lectionary or any of their resources, but it is an old tradition to, and, and if anybody doesn't know, this is the Josephus description of what actually happened in the year 70 when the temple was destroyed. It's it's pretty brutal as yeah. he describes. And of course, the idea liturgically is that just simply this is the historical fulfillment of this particular prophecy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I forgot about. I'm writing that down. I got to look into that for my own. I don't know if I. I don't know if I'll read it, but I, at least maybe read part of it in the sermon or talk about it or acknowledge yeah. it. It is. It is a good idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it begins with Nero sending Vespasian and Titus, and then Vespasian sending Titus finally in 69 and 70 to finish the job. What a nightmare. Yeah. And, uh, you know, who knows what we're facing, right? I mean, again, this isn't this isn't a triumphal, hey, look what happened to the Jews. Um, you know, we're, it'll never happen it's to us. It's meant for uh, our own repentance. Yeah, this is an example for us, and yeah. it, it has happened. This, this sort of thing, Christians have endured this. Right, wrongly, and Christians that are, that lived in wicked nations. Mm-hmm. There could have been Christians in Jerusalem that did suffer this. Most of um, them, according to Josephus, escaped to Pella, across yeah. the Jordan. So, but it, it, yeah, there is there is the reality though that the world is being judged, and yes, and Jesus says, "Pray that you'd have the strength to escape it." In a couple of chapters, so um, yeah, it is a warning to repent and to recognize these consequences and and to. And to know the things that make for peace, so that if we do have to suffer these horrific things, we we recognize it as the venue or the, you know, the path out of this world and into the promises of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, what are you going to preach on? Well, now you got me thinking about Josephus. Um, I don't know. I don't know. The peace thing. I think the, the stones, the peace, those are good. Yeah. Uh, the antinomianism, maybe. Yeah. You know, this this den of thieves and the way that we might abuse the sacrament to make it a... A talisman of some sort. I mean, you do have this, you know, the, I mean, you know, we, we have this pronouncement of peace, right, after the, after the consecration, before the reception of the sacrament. Mm-hmm. And there could be some rebuke of, uh, you know, when we're not, that we don't always pay attention to that or recognize the significance of those words and that Christ is visiting us here in the sacrament. Mm-hmm. There's a lot, there's a, this is a rich text to be sure. Is there, is there a sense in which, you know, not only should we address our actual hearers and what they're struggling with in terms of how they refuse visitation or how they make the word in the sacraments, um, a, a talisman or a good luck charm or a, a, a safe house for themselves. Is there a sense in which we need to talk about just our own nation? And, you know, every president ends their speeches with, and God bless America, or almost every politician does, maybe not as much as they used to. This the same kind of thing, using God's name and Christian things as a way to hide from well-meaning Christians' eyes what's actually happening. Is is, is that this text also? It could be, yeah, a kind of warning that we shouldn't be complacent because our money says in God we trust. Right. Or because the politicians mouth these words. Or because we sing God bless America or... Right. We're invoking God, but but uh, what God are we invoking? And and even if we are invoking, you know, it's hypocrisy is real, mm-hmm. and you know this can be used to manipulate. You know, we can, yeah. So we, we we can't just judge. Well, he said, "God bless America," so I'm sure he's a Christian. Well, look what he's doing. Yeah, you know, and yeah, yeah. I think that's that's a fair warning. And I and our people, it is possible to be very naive about that. Yeah. Um, 
you know, to have a kind of patriotic fervor or love of country that actually assumes Christian values for our nation that might have been true at one point, but certainly aren't now. Yeah, I mean, we are to have natural affections, but yeah, um, you know, for our homeland and things like that. Right, right. But is, no, I'm not. I'm it, not just. But but it is possible for that to be naive. Yeah, or that we begin to do what even the the, the Jews did in Jesus's day, which is you know, right. or in Jeremiah's day, nothing's going to happen to Jerusalem because the temple's here. Right. We're God's favorite country. He's blessed us. He knows we're the best. Yeah. I mean, there's an also a kind of idolatry and arrogance that can grow up out of patriotism too. Sure, sure. You know, um, and I mean, you know, not just, I, I mean, this can happen with all sorts of institutions, including the Missouri Synod or oh, our congregations, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. As though the Missouri Synod is God's chosen body, you know? <laughs> and, you know he's, <laughs> I know it's ridiculous, but they're you know, it, it is possible for us to become proud of stupid things or things that we shouldn't be proud of. Right. Again, it's not that we shouldn't love our church body and be thankful for the blessings we've received from it, but yeah, there, there's a, a danger in that again. So Yeah, and but we're usually doing that by ignoring what the forefathers of the faith from that church body or that nation have actually said or done. That's right. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, we're 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 just we because we've loved the institution, and and it's just easier to not think mm. or criticize or or we do it by you know historical revisionism or something like that. Oh yeah, that's true too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what are you going to preach? What are you going to preach on? I have typically preached on the uh, safe house thing, mm. and and how often it is the case that. We use the gospel and the sacraments as um, as a way of just slightly covering over our sins and not actually repenting of them, not taking sin seriously. Um, yeah. But uh, and and I have on occasion, you know, asked people to consider the triumphal entry and the time of your visitation kind of together, and this is the time Sunday morning when when King Jesus is visiting, yeah. um, can you imagine not showing up for it? Right. Uh, and, uh, but I, I don't know kind of what direction to go this year. If I'll just do what I have done. Um, How about also like, you know, if the King's going to come to your house, you clean the house, right? I mean, you put on your best clothes. I mean, there is a, there is a, you know, I wonder if we could do something with two is that what, if we don't really, if we come to communion without preparation, mm-hmm. what does not knowing the time of your visitation mean? Yeah, that's a good. To how good deep question. can that go? Right. Do you and recognize? It, yeah. Do you actually treat it like a real visitation by the king, or do you just belly up there? Like, I mean, I think I think one of the valid criticisms of the low churchers in our midst, you know, who are against. Uh, Holy Communion every Sunday, you know, they do say, well, we used to take it more seriously and we used to prepare for it. Mm-hmm. And that's a, you know, that's a, I mean, you see that in Lutheranism. I mean, in historic Lutheranism, there's a lot of talk about preparing for Holy Communion and taking it very seriously. And I, you know, I think there is a sense in which, yeah, we, we do just kind of belly up there without a lot of forethought. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, that is a weakness that we should work on. That we sh- that's worth addressing in our circles. 
Yeah. I don't mean we should have communion less frequently to make it more special or to make preparation some sort of burdensome thing um, at the same, or, you know, or that Holy Communion is based upon, you know, the proper preparation. Uh, And yet at the same time, you know, if we really believe that this is the risen body and blood of the King who's coming to visit us, you know, we might think that morning about what shirt we're putting on. Yeah. And, you know, we might just think about, you know, the night before what we're doing and, you know, we just ought to have an awareness of what's right. Yeah. So, so that maybe I'm going to write that down too. Yeah. This is all good, good stuff. Well, that's, that's kind of, you know, what I like about that as I'm talking about it is that it's easy for us to want to sort of preach against the errors of other people. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, preach against the antinomianism of the open communion people. Well, I, I mean, I'm in favor of that. It needs to be done. <laughs> Uh, at the same time, I mean, you know, what what are the peculiar ways that we are actually violating this also instead mm-hmm. of just preaching about other people? Yeah. And so what's been can... hidden from our eyes? Yeah, exactly. Maybe this preparation thing, I think, I mean, I know it has been. Mm-hmm. I know I haven't. I know I haven't done a lot of preparation. And even like things, you know, if you get to church late, right, at what point should you not receive communion? Mm-hmm. And I wonder if I need to lay down some law on that amongst my people. What would you say? You know, I, I don't know. I've been asked it. I've, I've always been afraid of being a legalist. So I don't, I mean, I, I've, I've always said, well, I mean, at bare minimum, I mean, you should have, you, you should hear the words of institute. You absolutely should not take communion if you haven't heard the words of institution. Yeah. But um, I mean, that's really minimalistic, right? Uh yeah. They're always worried. The people always are wondering about the confession and absolution at the beginning, if that's necessary. I mean, nothing's necessary except faith, right? So, I mean, but, but you know what I'm, I, they don't mean it legalistically necessary, but they're like, what's appropriate? Yeah. And maybe that is, maybe that is what's appropriate. You get, you, the problem you is the that hymn. was not Grace always period. included, right? I know. I know, but it is amongst us. It's always included pretty much. Always. So, I mean, maybe the grace period is the opening hymn. You know what? Mm-hmm. If you get here, that's five minutes. If you get here five minutes late, you just abstain that week. I don't know. That feels pretty, but I'm just thinking out loud right now. But at what, (laughs) that's the name of our podcast, right? Um, Yeah, I don't know. I I think it's worth actually thinking about. And maybe, maybe I need to give some guidance. I've been asked for guidance on this actually a lot. And I've never, I've always refused to give guidance. Yeah. I just realized that. Yeah. I I don't know. What would you say? I would say you you have to be there. You have to be there for the reading of the gospel and the sermon. That's what I would okay. say. All right. Because, I mean, I'm well, because that, be, that that's time. Like 50, that's 20 minutes almost. That's, oh, yeah. You can be 20 minutes late maybe. Because there is a sense in which during that time, the hearing of the Yeah, you can gospel, prepare. There is preparation in hearing what he's saying. Um, I like it. I, I've thought that before too. Yeah. But – um, because it's not, it's not as, I mean, it's not as though people are really pausing that long, even though the rubric <laughs> says to, you know, now pause for silence for self-reflection during the confession absolution. You know, what do we count to 20 maybe? Or do well, people look, just go right away? Of course. Yeah. But so, so I, I mean, I don't know. I, that's I like, where, I like that's it. where I'd put, I, I, there is time to hear what the pastor is saying and yeah. have some sort of self-examination, maybe not over what really needs to be examined, but at least something. 
Yeah, and, and it, it, it gives you time to settle, to actually yeah. think about God's word, to hear God's word and to mm-hmm. be impacted by it, right? Yeah. And then to contemplate it, repent and believe. And then also, of course, we have the creed that way as well and the prayers. I mean, I think I think that does – and that's – you know, you could be 15 minutes – I mean, our services are just barely over an hour. I mean, you're miss, that's pretty late, yeah. really. Uh, uh, yeah. I like it. I think I'm also on. pretty hard on people in that I, I I give people a hard time when they leave after the sacrament. Oh, I don't have anybody leave after the sacrament. You have people yeah. leave after the sacrament? Well, every once in a while cuz huh. they're like, "Oh, we've got this appointment or we've got to go got here." The important parts. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it's not I, just like getting there on time, but you yeah. need to hear the rest. You know, yeah, I agree. They should be given. I mean, again, there could be exceptions and times when it makes sense. But I mean, right. I think that's, I'd give them a hard time too. Mm-hmm. They deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, we all deserve it. We, yeah. we, we'll, we, we, we do exist for the sake of, of holding one another up and of, of raising the standard and of helping us live up to these ideals. And yeah. we, we should not just make excuses for people all the time. That's not actually loving. Right. I mean, I, you make excuses for people that you think are too stupid or weak to actually do any better. Right. You know, I mean, the, you know, if you're talking to somebody that has Down syndrome, you know, you, you put up with things from him because you feel sorry for him, but not, it's not a, I mean, that's the right thing to do, but it's not a form of respect. Yeah. It's treating them like hobbits. Yeah. And I mean, I, it's appropriate, but I mean, let's be honest, right? You, you, that's not how we want to be treated or seen as right. weak as, you know. They can't and, help it. Right. And I mean, if that's appropriate to them because they really can't, good. You know, mm-hmm. that, that's fair. Um, you know, you, you treat people appropriately, but if they're actually capable of more and you refuse to recognize it, then I mean, that's insulting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. All Any right. final thoughts? I think we- I think we murdered this one. I don't think there's anything left. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, thanks for your time, Dave. Thank you.